Hello, everyone, and welcome again to another episode of the Human and Machine podcast. Uh, my name is Jakob Marquardt. I'm here with my co-host, Lenny Smith. Um, for those of you that have not listened to an episode before or first time joining us, thanks for listening, first of all. And secondly, we are based here in Johannesburg in South Africa. And of course, the Human and Machine podcast is a show where we, first of all, focus on the industrial manufacturing world. Um, including mining. I always leave mining out of that one, specifically with the lens of, of, of industrial manufacturing here in South Africa. And, and what we aim to do is every week we have conversations with um, role players in the industry, uh, people that we feel are quite influential, um, that are contributors, that are end users, and really anyone that has a story to tell about this industry that we love, that is industrial manufacturing. We take a look at the tech that is available, um, and we also look at um, the impact of, for example, that COVID-19 has had on the industry. That's been pretty much uh, the main theme for the, for the last few episodes. Um, I think it has been Lenny. It's been quite prolific and quite impactful. Um, how are you? Cool. Thanks, Yaku. Thanks for the introduction. I'm quite excited. I think this week we, um, we've kicked up our, our podcast with some local flavor. Uh, this week we've got our first international guest. So I'm very excited That's to... That's right, over to, Zoom. Over Zoom. Um, I'm very excited to, to have Jeff Nepo on the call. Uh, he's the Executive Director of Business Development at Canary. Uh, Jeff, how are you? Oh, I'm great, guys. How are you? And thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. We're doing well. And Jeff, you're joining us from Pennsylvania. You, you're based in Pennsylvania, right? That's right. Yeah, here on the East Coast of the United States and soon to actually be based out of Texas, where um, I believe uh, Flow Software has some offices. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so your move to Texas is, is imminent. Uh, I am 30 days away from being a Texan. I've bought my boots <laughs> and my cowboy hat. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, yeah, Jeff, just thank you again for joining us. So, Jeff, you are, of course, with uh, Canary Labs. <clears throat> now, for, for the folks that are listening that are not familiar with Canary Labs, Canary Labs is, is, um, has been around since 1985, I think, Jeff. It's been it's, it's actually quite a bit longer than I, I had thought. But for those of, of our listeners that are not familiar with, with Canary it is, first of all, a, a time series database for industrial automation, but um, certainly a lot more. It's actually, uh, uh, it's actually a, a plant information management system uh, because that's exactly what it is. It's, it's a system. It's not, not just a time series database. Uh, but yeah, Canary Labs, just, just quickly framing the, the, the background of, of the company, Jeff. It's, Canary's been around since 1985. Yeah, what's so funny is our founder was off at university in the 70s and got introduced to a computer as part of a chem lab. And this was back when it was punch card programming. And that, that's how he fell in love with computing. So before there was a computer science degree, he was at university and, uh, and just got bitten by the bug. And the next thing you know, he's doing internships with the Department of Defense and developing software that was based around nanosecond computing. And then in the 80s, this need for a database really came about for the first time in the industrial automation space. Yeah, fantastic. And how the hearts progressed since then. Jeez, I mean, I think <laughs> you know, apparently data is important. Um, that's, <laughs> what we that's, that's what we hear every day. Um, that's what we hope. every day. So, yeah. And Jeff, a little bit about yourself. How did you fall into this? Um, I know sometimes I relate to you as you are 
time series data. So um, just how did you get into this industry? That, that, that's what you're known as in our office, Jeff. Mr. Time Series Data. <laughs> Mr. Time Series Data. That's great. That's great. Okay. I, I've been known as worse, I suppose. <laughs> So what's funny is I had absolutely no background in the industrial automation space whatsoever six years ago. Um, my background has been more on the sales and marketing um, and business management. Um, and I was lucky enough to find Canary uh, based on local connections in the fact that they are headquartered in the town I was already living in. Um, and I was actually at, at, a, at a party. Um, I was speaking to some of the uh, members of the Canary team and they were telling me about what they do. And in particular, they were telling me about the market in which they operated. And what I was hearing from my side was that there was basically three big giant conglomerates that controlled the industrial automation space and that engineers and companies were getting some serious pain points by being forced to work in maybe a polite way to say would be an archaic business model. Yep. Um, and it felt ripe for disruption. And so my sales brain and my marketing brain started really going full speed. Um, I started a conversation uh, with the founders of Canary and uh, we found out uh, through that there could be a mutual beneficial relationship. And so I spent about six months um, just really learning as much as I could um, about the industrial automation space and, uh, and then started trying to apply maybe what I had learned to be successful in other business ventures and other markets yeah. uh, into, into this space. And it's really has, has been an incredible experience for me um, just to learn so much. <laughs> and just to constantly be a student of, of learning. And uh, yeah, and so that's my background. Um, but the, the problem that we saw uh, six years ago is still, I think, as relevant today as it was then. Yeah. Yeah, certainly is. And, and I mean, so, so, so that was just, just under five years that you've been with him. And I mean, 18,000 18, plus, I think, installations in more than 50 countries. I mean, it certainly is... is uh, has definitely had a very, very good, not only adoption sort of curve, but um, really good growth for you guys over the last few years. I, I think so. And, and the problem, you know, essentially the, the problem has resonated into every country, every, every industry. And, you know, engineers are, are, they know one thing for sure. They know that having access to good and valid data is yep. crucial for decision-making, right? Um, and ultimately, why make that Why do you need access? Well, so that your decisions can be the best decision to save your company money, whether that's in time, in efficiency, in um, dis, uh, in avoiding uh, safety issues. It's all about the bottom line. But the issue has been the solutions that were available to you to do this were either outrageously expensive. I mean, millions of dollars, outrageously expensive, yeah. or the databases were highly unreliable or worst of all, it was some type of a homegrown solution that you had to build upon some open source database with um, potentially hundreds of man hours of working through connectors to make it work inside of your stack. And where's the ROI in all of that? So if, if it, it's just, it was a broken model. Um, 
And that's really why Canary has had such a high adoption rate so fast. We had done the work over the last 30 years to provide the reliability in the database and not just in the database, but the client tools to add the context to the data. All we had to do was change our pricing model and make it easy to adopt the solution into existing stacks. So easy to get data in, easy to get data out, fast ROI, generally less than six months. That's the, that's the goal when we find a potential partner. And that's why I think, I think that's what the industry has been yelling for. Um, what's, what's your all's opinion? What do you see in the South African market? No, for sure. And I think in, in the South African market, we also see, uh, we've got a saying in South Africa, a poor market plan. So that means let's, let's see how, how much, how much can I do myself? Right. And how quickly I can, I myself create something yeah. out of nothing. Or, or let's see how much I can fix with duct, duct tape. Duct tape, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and I think there's a lot of, um, as you said, open source databases on the market. There's, there's, you can go and write potentially your own connector. You can try, and get these things into a database and into to actually now store the data. But there's there's critically a few things that Canary does very well when we're just talking about storing data and just the vast amount of data that you guys can actually store in a second as an example into into your data store. Yeah, it's 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 hard to get your mind around it. Big, we have this problem with big numbers. It, we just we can't visualize numbers greater than generally a hundred thousand what that looks like um and that's just because our stadiums can be filled with a hundred thousand people right um but so (laughs) some larger systems can have more than five million historical tags five million historical tags (laughs) and when you think about that loadout you do not want the choke point of your of your pim system you don't want the bottleneck to be getting data into the archive. And yep. so Canary has been engineered um, for extremely high and consistent write speeds. Uh, we are able to do over 2 million writes per second in a 24-7 continuous operation. And so that will ensure, on a single server, mind you, so that ensures that the historian just won't be that choke point. And, and very important to note on that as well is as we store these amount of data, the degradation of the system performance doesn't actually worsen. So you get the exact same functionality and the exact same write speeds. doesn't matter how big your system grows at the end of the day. Where I think lo- local or custom-made solutions really would suffer to try and, and emulate that. Yeah, yeah. It's... You know, we, we have a large team of developers that spend 40 hours a week trying to always make the product better. And uh, just the same reason I don't uh, handle my stock portfolio in my financial <laughs> uh, on my own is because I don't pretend to think that I'm going to spend more time than, uh, than portfolio managers uh, understanding the complexities of that system. And that's why we, we often would recommend don't try to build this yourself. Um, just trying to handle reporting around daylight savings time will will waste a year of your life. <laughs> now, Jeff, I think when we talk about PIMS and we go up to the, the second part of it, it, it's good and it's all good and well getting the data in and actually being able to connect to all of these different points on our manufacturing floor. But I think that something that, that that's steps apart between just being a normal time series historian is the ability to add context to your data. 
I think that's very crucial for any PIMS kind of implementation is to have the ability to assign these different contexts to the real-time data that you're actually storing into your historic. Yeah, Lenny, that's a great point. So part of my job is I get to travel a lot. And I find myself, uh, particularly inside of Fortune 500 companies, uh, working with process engineers. And it's usually on more of a enterprise corporate um, data center level, right? They are collecting data from all of their sites around the enterprise, bringing it back to a central location and uh, from a very high level analyzing that data. And the one thing that has struck me as odd, and it could just be, again, my outside um, view uh, coming into this industry, is that here we have what I like to call automation superstars, men and women who have cut their teeth <laughs> on creating automated uh, workflows and processes. But when I'm watching them funnel through the data, it's still very manual. It's yeah. very manual. They are, they are trying to, to find that needle in a haystack um, to find what could be going wrong. And one of the things that's become really important at Canary is to try to give automation superstars automated workflows. So um, let's just, I don't know. I always use boilers because it seems like it's a bit of a universal when talking to engineers. <laughs> it's <super> um, <laughs> right. If, if you've got a hundred boilers within your enterprise, um, you don't want to check a hundred boilers every, every three days to check their, their temperature settings. Instead, you want to be able to say, show me the boilers that are operating outside of parameter. And so being able to add that type of context to a large data archive where you're, instead of asking for everything, you're asking for the exceptions to the rule really gives the end user the power to be able to take raw data and turn it into information that's actionable. And that's what's important. No, definitely. And um, I think it's not just giving them access and being able to, to kind of add these parameters on top of it, but also you might need to be able to create calculations on top of this data to actually steer you into the right context as well. Yeah, and you're exactly right. The calculations are key. And so um, I think you're, it's a great segue to talking about, uh, actually, Lenny, I think I'm going to steal this one from you, I believe. Um, if I'm not mistaken, we co-presented uh, maybe almost two years ago now, and I watched you talk about the uh, dashboard on your car, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, and, it's still one of uh, the best visualization techniques that's out there, and it's something everybody look at every day. <laughs> and I guarantee you, Lenny still has the same car as well. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lenny, as you, I think, very succinctly um, demonstrated, our dashboard gives us raw data. It gives us the data that we're used to consuming on an operational level in the field. Um, what's our current speed? How many ticks on the odometer? Um, what's the level of fuel in the tank? But then, Lenny, am I right in saying the second piece you talk about is the condition-based? Correct. Right? What happens if a check engine light comes on? Well, that's right. So, right, we're, we're defining rules around the raw data or around multiple pieces of raw data and saying, here's a calculation that's more situationally aware. And then um, what was your third? It's not like I can, can monitor each and every temperature sensor that the car is able to generate for me and each and every oil pressure for me to try and understand, listen, is this actually something going wrong with my car? There's much better ways to visualize it. Um, there's eventing systems that does that, like the event, um, the, the engine light on the car. 
and that's something that you can build into into the PIMS solution to actually do and do that. The other so the other point that I had, Jeff, is you only know where you're going if you're looking in the past. So, hmm. yes, you know what your current speed is, you know what your current odometer is, but how much as you have you ever actually travelled on this trip, and how long can you actually go before you have to fill up? So that that aggregated type of data on based on on your trip and how fast you're driving to actually determine your the gallons that's that's left it's it's crucial for you to actually make an informed decision on when you need to stop for gas and it's exactly the same in our plant information solutions yeah you're exactly right and so i think typically i think typically if we would look at at the at the at the stack right um it, uh, an engineer would have to go back to the plc and program those calculations in. And not every organization touches their PLCs. Now, that might be calling in your integrator and that's got an expense to it. So Canary thought, let's give you an engine within the Canary system where you can build out these calculations so that if you have a temperature that's giving you a real-time update, but you also wanna know what the running average is for the last 15 minutes, well, you don't need to touch the PLC to do that. Let's just build it off the tag that's already in Canary. Um, if you need to, to build condition monitoring in, let's just use the event service and tell you exactly when this has happened, where it happened, and during the duration of the event, what some other key parameters were around your different tag values. And so I think you're right, Lenny, that context build out has really been one of the, the secrets to our success because you're not just purchasing a database. <laughs> You're not just purchasing some some data collectors to log data to an archive. You're purchasing the tools you need to actually grab more information than just raw data out of the archive. And, and just on that raw data, it's also lossless raw, raw data. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. So Maybe that, we should explain what that means. Yeah. Yeah. So that baffled me. Um, again, <laughs> outsider's perspective, I come to find out that most of the solutions don't actually keep the data values in the original format, um, that they would run some type of algorithm um, that would end up being a compression algorithm using like a swinging door or worse, <laughs> worse would come back after three months and take all of the raw data and just roll it into a five minute time average. Uh, and some type of interpolation was getting applied. Um, and so when I learned that that was prevalent in the industry, we really started speaking about Canary's lossless data compression. So our algorithm never changes the raw data values. I don't care if you store data for 10 years or 10 minutes, it's the exact same data value as what it was the day you wrote it to the archive. And we still pick up a 3x compression uh, ratio. So it's one of the smallest footprints in the industry, and it is by far the most advanced algorithm in the industry for storing raw data. Yeah, that's insane. Um, I mean, we're talking about, as you mentioned, data that change every second, and it's it's millions of tags, potentially millions of values that we store, and you guys don't, don't leave a, lose a heartbeat over it. So each and every one of those raw data points gets stored, and it's it's really something that's that's truly remarkable about the technology. Yeah. Um, Jeff, quickly, you mentioned something earlier, and, and maybe if uh, for the listeners that have been listening to to the last few podcasts, there's been a, been a few themes that have been um, sort of uh, quite prevalent through throughout the podcast we've done so far. There's definitely a theme around um, 
pricing. You spoke about sort of almost uh, locked in sort of pricing that we've seen in the industry and the market from, from some of these sort of large uh, companies that have been around for seemingly for, forever. Uh, the second one is definitely the ROI. Um, and probably more than just the ROI, but probably, you know, how, how does that benefit the, the bottom line, which is ROI, obviously, but what is the business driver? And I think some of the discussions we've had over the last few podcasts is the importance of understanding how a piece of technology improves a process or enable people to eventually get me a better bottom line. That's definitely a, been a theme that's, that's been coming through the conversation. And the one that I would just want to spend a little bit of time on is the, is the theme of or the notion of data um, or information as, as a currency and the value of data. <clears throat> so what we've been observing in South Africa over the last little while is, is probably with the introduction of, of cheaper devices, cheaper networks, the ability to very quickly and easily now add multiple disparate kind of data sets um, into your system has become uh, definitely less of a barrier than what it has been over the last, I would say, probably compared to five years ago. So we'll be talking about these massive amounts of data. Um, we, uh, we sort of classify it as almost industrial IoT, I suppose. Um, mm -hmm. What are the, some of the technologies? I, I know there's, there's a lot of talk about MQTT, um, sort of in layman's terms for those listeners that are not familiar with that space of mass data collection. Uh, what are some of the observations and technologies available in that space? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I, I want to address the problem that makes this connection, uh, this question so important. Mm -hmm. And the problem you, you touched on, it's, it's so easy now and affordable to go buy a new piece of hardware and plug it in somewhere and connect points to it. Mm -hmm. The issue comes in managing all of those pieces of hardware and in moving that data through your existing stack. So you've, you've got this, this model where your instrumentation is on one level, then your skate is on a level, and then the historian typically goes on the next level, and then you have MES or an ERP system, and then cloud and advanced analytics, machine learning, AI, and it just keeps stacking. And organizations have been having to manage all of these connections between all of these different components of the stack and every time you change something somewhere, you have to go through and, re, uh, and reconnect more systems. It becomes extremely expensive, hmm. not, in, not in hardware or in licensing, but in manpower. And it really slows project development and launch down. And so that has been the problem. Now, what we are seeing for the solution is a moving away from that traditional stack and moving more to an actual broker-centric architecture. So yeah. whether it be an OPC UA server or a MQTT spark plug server like what CirrusLink offers, um, the idea is that we get away from the pull response and we move to a, a sub-pub model where we have publishing clients, we have subscribing clients, and everyone is interacting with the same, um, almost a hub-spoke architecture where the broker is central. And that is really the push. It's the push from the vendors because the vendors, I, we're tired of having to manage custom connectors <laughs> to other pieces of software. That's one of the reasons we love Flow and we love inductive automation so much, their ignition project, product, because we don't have to manage those connectors. We can just use MQTT. <laughs> 
yeah, in South Africa, we always had a term about the spaghetti integration. That's Sp our, spaghetti integration. Spaghetti yeah. integration. Um, so yeah, the hub and spoke model really does cater for that. And, and the nice thing about the hub and spoke model is you're 100% right. I don't have to go direct through all of these layers anymore. If an ERP needs a, a signal or an MES solution needs a signal directly from either the historian level or the PLC level, doesn't matter. It doesn't have to go through all of these hoops. It can just go to the broker and everybody that needs to consume that data point can consume it. So definitely it's, it's been an eye opener for me and the amount of data and devices that, that can be handled by that is, is really impressive. So it's mm -hmm. really been an eye opener for me um, coming from the traditional kind of automation pyramid like we always used to know it. Yeah. Um, that hub and spoke model is really something, something exciting in the industry. And Jeff, also, could you guys from Canary are part of the NQTT symposium or drive. Maybe you can explain a little bit more on that. Yeah, absolutely. So MQTT um, was uh, co-invented in the mid-90s uh, by Arlen Nipper and um, I believe Andy Stanley Clark. Um, I, I might be off on one of uh, on his name. Uh, but either way, they invented it to solve a problem. Um, it got deployed with Philips 66 on their pipelines and it really started to take off. And so now we find ourselves in a space where IIoT is driving the universal adoption of this standard. Um, so Arlen and team did something very wise. They wrote a specification around the MQTT transport and said, this specification will allow anyone in the IIoT space to understand how to read and how to package payload using the MQTT um, transfer protocol so that we can immediately all start speaking the same dialect of MQTT. It's enabled essentially plug and play IIoT projects. Just like um, now you can connect a driver to your home, I'm sorry, connect a printer to your home network without having to go download the driver and install everything. The printer just kind of shows up. Yep. That's, what, that's what Sparkplug has allowed to happen. And then Arlen and team very wisely gave it away. <laughs> they, they didn't want to own it. They did not want to force people to only play in this space, only play with their company. So you think about the, the difficulty with the, the, the big three, right? On a vendor, on a vendor side is you kind of have to start purchasing your hardware and, and your level two and level three software solutions from the same vendor because they can hold your feet to the fire on their, on their protocols. Well, by giving Sparkplug to the Eclipse Foundation, a Tahu project, it has essentially made it open source and uh, has put the priority of maintaining the, the, the solution or the specification to the community that's going to use it. And so Canary immediately got on board, became a, a founding member of the um, Eclipse Tahu uh, Sparkplug Working Group, along with Inductive Automation, um, along with uh, Cirrus Link, along with Chevron, who's really pushing from an end user's perspective, the demanding their vendors support this protocol, um, uh, as well as a few other um, vendors and uh, end users as well. So we're very excited about this project, as you can tell from my ramblings. Yeah, I mean, that's, that really is impressive, Jeff. Absolutely, and probably a massive requirement just for the future of, of, of everything, of the industry as a whole. It, uh, it's crucial for this technology to be open, uh, to be multi-vendor, to be accessible to most and all. Um, 
you know, it's, it's what we need right now to overcome this gap and, and, and this requirement from industry. Um, so, so that's great. That's exciting. It's very exciting. Well, and to the credit of Emerson's and Alan Bradley and, and, and uh, Wonderware, that they are recognizing this and they are making the right moves to shift. They're making the right moves to shift. You know, I equate it to Canary's always been, always been very lucky um, in that we have been the, the small boat on the lake, right? With a, with a two foot rudder and we can pivot very quickly to address needs in the market. Um, these large companies are huge cruise ships, right? A big cargo ships and, and their rudders are very long, large and, and their turn is, is much slower because of the size of the company, but they are hearing, they are responding. And I, I really think you're going to see these types of standards and protocols, these universal standards and protocols, do what Modbus did <laughs> for the industry uh, so many years ago for the so empowering of IIoT. And we, we probably see that in, in pretty much every kind of technology industry is the ability for things, systems, and people to connect and speak to each other. Uh, interoperability is, 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 seems to be the, one, of the, one of the magic source words when you, when you talk about technology. Regardless of the tech type, interoperability is, is, is quite an important one. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if you look at the success of some of the other platforms that are out there, that's why they've been successful. Why has Ignition by Inductive Automation really started to catch the world on fire? Why? Why in less than eight years have they gone from, a, from new to becoming a standard? It's because they don't hold you down to any one thing. They've embraced MQTT for interoperability. Look at Flow Software. Between Flow Canary and Ignition, we can share data in, with less than 30 minutes of configuration because of MQTT. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's true. Maybe um, steering the point a little bit back to Canary. <laughs> before, we, um, before we talk about um, the great ways that we can actually analyze and interpret the data, um, one thing for me from the Canary side, Jeff, is the way that we can make all of this data available to anybody in the enterprise or in your, in your enterprise. I mean, we're talking potentially about, your, I don't know, five, five million points. Um, if not everybody is interested potentially in all of those points, certain people only interested in certain assets. Um, so there's, there's a great way that we can actually add another piece of context to our data, which is the concept of an asset and make that available to, to any user pretty much that needs to see that data. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about that. That's a great point, Lenny. Um, to your 100,000 subscribers and listeners to this podcast right now, <laughs> raise, raise your hand if working from home on two days notice, right? <laughs> four, four months ago, I guess, three months ago, if it created connectivity issues with getting access to your data, or at least pain points, right? And everywhere there's hands going in the air. <laughs> it's probably what's kept IT teams exceptionally busy over the last few weeks and months. Yeah, no, no one in an IT department anywhere got laid off. <laughs> <laughs> you you saw operation guys requesting to become IT guys. Uh, the uh, yeah, so there's two parts to Canary that really have made those that had already adopted it uh, king of the hill, if you will, during COVID. Um, and for future listeners, we're speaking right now, still in the height of it. Um, 
the first part is what Lenny, you just alluded to, and that's our asset modeling feature. So the, the archive, the historian that we write data to, it's always the same. The points come in, they're named just like they are generally inside of the SCADA system or at the PLC or the OPC server, MQTT broker, et cetera. And we, and we want you to write them that way. Um, but your, your clients, your end users, your engineers, they probably don't need to consume the data that way. And certainly the folks on the business side of your, of your organization don't want to see engineering level tag naming. Um, and we want to be able to offer tag aliasing and then tag grouping or restructuring into the things that those tags describe like assets. And so we have a gatekeeper service within our solution called views that allows you to create as many virtual virtual um, views of that historical archive as you would like. So simply put, <clears throat> I can take a group of 100 tags out of my 5 million or my 5,000, whatever, and I can organize those 100 tags into a special grouping, change the naming of those tags, alias them, and provide them to a certain group of clients without ever impacting the historical record. So now when my clients come in and, wanna, and want to have access to production data, uh, maybe they're looking for uh, bottle efficient, you know, bottling efficiency. So I want to know uh, the good count versus the production. So I know what, uh, what total count. So I know what my production was for today. And I want that for all of my lines across the organization. They can just come in and look at good production tag for every line without having to wade through pages and pages of tag names. And that has been so powerful. Um, it's just, it's, it's made it so much easier for people to get access to the data they need and avoid the data they just frankly don't care about. Yeah, one smart, one smart guy, I wonder who that is, once told me that um, it's like looking at the world through different lenses. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it is, it is. I, I, I very quickly, um, be, before we lose, uh, lose track of this topic, I very quickly want to speak about uh, the sort of licensing or pricing that you mentioned earlier. So, so when you're talking about this virtual view, uh, my understanding of how those sort of models and associated pricing works, isn't that, isn't that an expensive way to get your asset views? If, if, if you pull that specific tag into every one of those views or always canary licensed differently? Yeah, so um, it is absolutely licensed differently. In fact, the only thing we license is the number of tags you want to store in the actual historical archive. Um, you can place one of those tags into as many virtualized views as you would like, and there is no impact on the business model. Um, in fact, we stop licensing tags at 40,000 tags. The entire system goes unlimited at 40,000 tags. And so that gives you ultimate scalability to start with a 10 or 15,000 tag historian and just go crazy with it because everyone is getting more IO. No one is getting less IO at this point. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, you good. Yeah. Sorry. It looked like you were going to ask a question there. Yeah, it, okay. feels, it feels like we, 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 we jousting to, to get in a question. <laughs> um, Jeff, I, I wanted to quickly, um, you mentioned earlier about, so obviously the objective is to get the right information into the hands of the correct decision makers. Um, and the more context that we have there, the better the decision-making capability. What, is, what does that look like today in 2020, that delivery of that information? I know, I know that you, you know, it, it's potentially, it, well, first of all, it's got to be accessible. 
those dashboards of that information and that context of contextualized information has to be accessible from anywhere, any device. Um, I know that preferences to get that kind of view in Excel, a lot of people sort of still digest and work with that raw, not raw data, but that contextualized raw data within Excel. Uh, what does that look like today? What, what is your gut feel or what's the feedback or what have you been seeing in terms of the delivery of that information? That's a great question. So first, let's let's divide our our information recipients into two groups. We have our live ongoing control process group, right? And they they need to consume real time data with very short historical um, viewpoints. So this is my control operator who is watching uh, his pressures in real time with a 30 minute historical trend. Yeah. Now, that side alone, typically we're taking our data and writing it right back into a SCADA system, visualizing data onto HMI screens, and then sometimes offering maybe daily or shiftly feedback reports to, to operation supervisors. Yeah. That is, that is much what you would expect it to be, I think. Um, note that all of our tools tend to be based in HTML or you can reach from Excel and pull processed or raw data or event-based data right out of the historian locally on the control network. So that there's nothing that's probably too special there. Um, if it is special, if it is special, then you're in a really tough spot, right? Yeah. Um, but the, the second part and really the, the highlight around the, the COVID side of things um, is this idea of remote access. I'm not on the control network. I don't, I don't, I'm not as concerned with real time last 30 minute type of data. I want broad picture data. So how do you get the data and make it easily accessible to those types of individuals? Well, we have found that decoupling the reporting module, which we call Axiom, um, and our view service, be able to get Axiom away from the historian, not require that it sit on the control network, but instead let it sit on a public facing web service um, gives you the ability to give third-party access to the data that's important to them. Again, virtual views, asset modeling, only see what you need. Yeah. But even more important, build out these HTML dashboards and automate the reporting of those dashboards into individuals' inboxes and never require them to have access to the system at all. So it's a PNG file, an image file that shows up and it's a condition-based report that shows them, you know, a seven-day, a 30-day. They're able to get all of the information they need and with zero effort. That has been really successful, especially right now. And Jeff, I, I also presume that, obviously, if, if I want to make changes to these dashboards, I mean, I don't really need specialized skills to understand how to pull data out of the story and write queries and all of these things. Um, it is a very simple drag and drop kind of environment to actually build potentially your own dashboard if you want to now look at a specific asset or monitor something specifically um, through the through the Axiom tool. You're right. The design tool is built right into the browser and it's drag and drop. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm a I'm a young dad. A young heck, I guess not anymore. But <laughs> my kids my kids are 10 and uh, 13, and uh, they are pros at Axiom. Um, so they've, they've taken the online Canary uh, Academy, uh, which is the equivalent of, oh, I don't know, maybe two hours worth of videos, and they can build their own little dashboards. 
And maybe that's, you know, maybe that's not actually recognizing a low learning curve because our kids are all smarter than us at this point. But, like, uh, <laughs> yeah, but no, it is. It's and Jeff, um, obviously, obviously the one way to consume the data is for us as humans to make, to make these decisions, but potentially there's other systems and other business solutions um, as we spoke about that actually need the data as well. Um, how easy is it for, for Canary or other systems to make this data available? Um, can, can anybody just get the data out of, out of the Canary system? Is it a black box? Um, is it open? Um, what do you guys have that for there to actually take this mass amount of, of data and pass it on to potentially other expert systems or ERP solutions? Great question. And we certainly don't want to be casual around access to the data because security is so important. Um, but Canary, everything about Canary is built on top of .NET. And so we are being installed on Windows systems, Windows platforms. Uh, we incorporate Active Directory to be able to qualify clients and access immediately. But then it's really important that we make sure, as you're hinting at, Lenny, that it's not just Canary tools that have access to the data but that our proprietary NoSQL database actually can have SQL queries written against it via uh, ODBC connector. Um, but the most common two formats now are really using our publishing service to get real-time data on a regular interval published out to third-party systems via JSON, um, as well as our web APIs and our MQTT publishing service. So if your application can benefit from a SQL query, from a web API call or from an MQTT subscription, it will be no problem to get data out of Canary. And if it doesn't, we still publish via OPC HDA as well. Oh, awesome. Perfect. Um, gee, I can't believe we've, we've been chatting for so long. It doesn't, it feels like it's been 10 minutes. Um, Jeff, yeah, th thank you. Uh, thank you for your insights. Uh, fascinating conversation. It feels like we can, we can chat about the topic for, for at least another hour. There's so much to talk about and, and certainly quite topical at the moment. Your um, prediction for the future of data and information, uh, are we close to predictive? Are we close to prescriptive? Um, wh what, is your, what is your prediction for the future of data? Uh, collection analytics and, and decision making as a whole that's that's probably not a fair question but <laughs> <laughs> what, what are your predictions for the future <laughs> um, okay so that's a great question and I will throw an answer out there without any um, confidence <laughs> but, <laughs> that's perfect. but uh, I, I think um, one we are still a bit away because I know firsthand there's the, the common struggle for organizations is still to collect data um, at a high granularity. So what has been missing has been the bandwidth to pull things at extremely fast pull rates. Um, you know, we, we can read data down to 10 milliseconds continuously. There's very few organizations that are taking advantage of that because they don't have the throughput. So that's, that's the first hurdle. Maybe, maybe 5G helps solve that. Um, we'll see. But let's assume that we've got the granularity and everyone's collecting data and they've been collecting data long enough to run some of these algorithms on for on the machine learning side. Um, I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a lot of third party companies um, as they already have started emerging to try to do things with this data. And it's going to be asset specific. 
Um, if you're in the wind turbine business, you're going to be looking at contractors who have some special uh, machine learning algorithms around wind turbines, right? Um, but all of that over time, I believe, is going to move. I think you're going to see, and this is where I come back and say, you know, the big three, Emerson, uh, for instance, is so important. They are going to acquire this technology. They are going to then move this technology to the edge where the asset sits. And it's going to be hardwired and built in and ingrained in the assets you're purchasing and putting onto your lines, uh, into your process. That's my prediction. I don't think we're going to have to do it post-fact. I think it's going to happen in real time at the edge. I think we'll see that loop. I hope. <laughs> Great. Well, one thing that I can take away from this session is, is one, it's pretty, okay, sorry, it's two words, uh, but that's definitely the words purpose-built. And I think um, yeah, Canary, sure. the Canary Labs um, solution is really purpose-built to really give you, at the end of the day, a complete PIMS, PIMS solution to help you to improve your analytics and definitely to help you make better decisions on your assets um, for your day-to-day -day manufacturing environment. Yeah, for right. sure. That's a great summary, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity, guys, to, to talk about it today. And to, to your listeners out there, um, share this. Not, not because of Canary. Share this because of what the guys at Eliminate are doing and uh, help them grow this. I think this is going to be a great podcast, not just for South Africa, but for the global industry. And uh, I appreciate the effort you guys are putting into it. No, fantastic. Jeff, thank you for your time. Um, I know you were due to be in South Africa sort of over this period. Obviously, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of folks' plans changed quite significantly the past two months. So we hope to we hope to see you in South Africa fairly soon. Oh, I, I hope so, guys. My last trip there uh, has been my favorite travel experience around the globe. Um, there's just there's something about South Africa that's just captivating, and I think and I'm pretty sure it's the people. <laughs> so uh, I, I appreciate it. I look forward to seeing you guys again soon. No, fantastic. We, we, we like to believe that we're some of the friendliest, friendliest people around. Um, here in South Africa, we certainly enjoy hosting, hosting folks from all over. But yeah, we definitely look forward to seeing you in South Africa soon when, when the dust has settled, so to speak, around this, this horrible pandemic that is just, that's affecting so many lives and economies all over the world. Yeah. But thank you for your time, Jeff, and, and good luck for your move to, to Texas. Exciting. Well, and thank you. For that. Thank you. And I agree. I think most hospitable people, but also the best rugby, right? Is that yeah, absolutely. absolutely well officially according to the World Cup standings and, yep. and last win, definitely the best rugby playing country in, uh, in the world. In, in the world. <laughs> so there you go, guys. There thank, you go. Thanks for remembering that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you for having me and cheers. Cool, awesome. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. So next week we're gonna have a look at the water industry in South Africa, Lenny, specifically. Um, the water and wastewater industry. Water is of course in, in South Africa and, and not just Africa, but I would imagine globally probably the most precious resource that we have. So we're going we're gonna to look at the South African water and wastewater industry next week. We're going to be lining up some, some people to speak to there and just look, take a look at where is the water industry? Where, what are some of the industries being, uh, technology, sorry, being deployed in that industry? Some of the challenges that we've seen there. It has progressed. It's come quite far from, yeah. from where we were a few years ago. We, we used to see these, these horrific stories in the news about just the inability to effectively treat and, and process water has come come quite a while so we since that so we're going to look at the water industry next week yeah definitely so there's some not just from a from an automation perspective but also from a processing perspective there's been great advances in in the water industry so looking forward to understand exactly how that how that put, it's all put together
And then once again, one of the key themes is data and information, exactly. as it wills. So folks, thank you very much for listening. That was our podcast for this week. If you have any questions or suggestions, please let us know at podcast at element8.co.za. Um, thank you again for listening. Stay safe and look after each other. Thank you very much. Bye.